Let's take a Bible now and open it to Luke, the introduction of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. I want to talk to you now in this session about what do Baptists believe. Have you ever talked to someone and they have an idea that they know what you believe, but it's not even close to what you believe? I'm sure you've heard somebody say, you believe in eternal security? Yes, yes, I do. I want to say, oh yeah. Then that means you can go out and kill somebody. No, but I've thought about it. And if you hang around me very long, I'm going to come get you, you know. But, uh, you know, they, they have all these kind of absurd ideas about what Baptists believe in and really never looked into it. And uh, look at the introduction, if you will, to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 1, as we read. For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us. Most surely believed among us. By, by the time that Luke wrote his gospel, he said, there are already people who have uh, taken up the opportunity to write something down about what's believed. And so we do have a, a belief system. And Luke continues and says, even as they delivered them unto us. These are evidently the, the apostles, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. These are the apostles who were writing down these things and setting them in order and, and encouraging people to believe them. They were most surely believed among them. There wasn't this frantic deal, I wonder who's going to write this book or who's going to say this right. They were... They were already having a, uh, a codifying, if you will, a, a written form of what they believe. Verse 3, it seemed good to me also, Luke says, having had perfect understanding, that's hard to believe some people can put that in perfect understanding. Yeah, if you're right, you're right. In our day of relativism where everybody is right no matter how wrong they are, it's hard for some people to believe that you can have a perfect understanding, but Luke did, of all the things from the very first, and he did it, he said, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus. Now, if you'll notice, Christian truth is written truth. It's not just oral truth. Have you ever played that game where you sat in a circle and whispered something, the one next to you, and then they the next, and before you know it, you got all the way around, and you didn't even know what was said originally? That's not how the Bible is. The Bible is a written record. That's what we need to pay attention to. Now here's why, verse 4, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. John concluded his gospel by saying that these are written that you might know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and the believing you might have life through His name. He also said in 1 John 5, that, that in verse 13, that these are written that you might believe, and that by believing you have eternal life, and that you can know that you're saved. And then your pastor tonight read from Jude 3, that we're to earnestly contend for the faith, which was once delivered to the saints. Joe Odell, in his uh, small uh, handbook on Baptist, said there is no distinct doctrine which make men Baptist. 
It is their position on a number of beliefs which when taken together make them a distinct people. What's interesting about Joe Odell's book is it is uh, in the original writing by Joe Odell, it was a local church only position which they have now footnoted with a universal church application inside that book. And uh, I'm sure Joe Odell did not give his permission to do that. George uh, McDaniel, who uh, spent time uh, with with the president of uh, Baylor University, would later found uh, Southwestern Seminary, I wrote a book called The Baptist, The People Called Baptist, a uh, hundred years ago, 101 years now. Look what he says. In other decades, Baptists were better indoctrinated than they are today. hundred years ago. The environment in which they lived, sometimes unfriendly to them, was conducive to the mastery of their principles. That is, the more you're challenged of why you believe what you believe, the, the, the deeper you will dig in to know why you believe it. We've got a lot of soft Christianity today where everybody believes everything but can prove nothing. And uh, Brother McDaniel said that it will help you to take the challenge of our day. I think this is a great day to be a Baptist. I don't think it's bad. I think it's good. I think it's going to help those of us who become serious about it to say this is what we believe. This is why we we believe it. George McDaniel went on to say, of latter years, a tendency to depreciate doctrinal discussion is easily discernible and young converts particularly are not rooted and grounded in the faith. A hundred years ago, he was already worried about the fact that uh, to even broach a conversation about doctrinal matters was sort of put off like, now don't get off that. You, you and I may fall out with each other if we knew what we believed. So just don't believe anything significant. And he was already worried about young converts. Now, I don't know how long you've been saved. Let me, let me have just a hand show. How many have been saved in the last 10 years of your life? Say, raise your hand if you've been saved. Raise it up high so we can kind of, we want to see you. We have an, you have an obligation, this church has an obligation to you to teach you the truth. And you have an obligation to learn the truth. And then you also have an obligation to share that truth with those you have influence with. And if you're a young convert, uh, that only goes for a while. You've, you've got a responsibility to grow in grace and to learn the truth and to pass it on. And then uh, Brother McDaniel closes this paragraph by saying, modern nonchalance, that he's talking about people here, act as if there, it makes little difference what one believes. With cavalier air, it belittles the man who has the nerve to make a denominational affirmation. Well, you've already found out that I've been making some denominational affirmations. And tonight, in this particular study about what people believe, I'm going to take their position and show you that many of the churches that you know about, that you have family in, that you have friends in, are not New Testament churches. I'm not doing that with any uh, edge on my life. I'm a sweet guy. If you really knew me, you'd just love me. 
I mean, you'd just fall in love with me. You'd think I was the sweetest thing. But I'm going to tonight just sort of show you that, hey, we have to be truthful about some of these things. And what I want to answer is, are Baptist churches New Testament churches? That is, can we take our New Testament, begin reading in Matthew, and read through our New Testament, and come to this conclusion? That's what our church believes. That's how our church practices. That's how we, uh, we put our church together, is by the Bible. And uh, so I want to answer that question by giving you, please take a deep breath now, 10 doctrinal statements. Now, I know that really frightens a lot of Baptists. I mean, a, a three-point sermon can go on and on. So if you just can just be patient with me, I promise you that within the next 50 minutes or so, I will uh, wrap these up as quickly as possible. Let's begin at the beginning. New Testament churches believe the Bible is the sole and final authority of a New Testament church. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. We have an inspired Bible. We don't have an expired Bible. God breathed into the Bible and made it alive. He chose the words. He, he, he providentially chose the people to put those words down. And we have that in the Bible. Now here's a little diagram that may help you a little bit more. God is true. God inspired the scriptures, so all the scriptures is true. Uh, we don't believe uh, like the modern, modernists do that the Bible is inspired in spots and they're inspired to spot the spots. You know, like the miracles of the virgin birth or some of the other things that they question. We believe all the Bible from cover to cover. And like the guy says, we believe in 70 books of the Bible. That's maps and concordance. Well, that's a full belief, but I'm going to stop it at uh, two less than that if you might. So uh, don't, don't all churches believe that the Bible is the sole and final authority? No, not really. Matter of fact, the uh, Catholicism doesn't believe that. They have uh, other books in the middle of the Old and the New Testament called the Apocrypha that they believe are equally as inspired and important as the Old and the New Testament. The Pope may uh, ex-cathedra, that is from his office, uh, have the authority to add some word or some uh, edict to the Catholic uh, Church. Uh, they have traditions that are added to that, and they, they have their own interpretation. Uh, Catholic people are not free to interpret the Bible. They must have one of their priests interpret the Bible. And, and my st stance against Catholicism against, is against Catholicism, not against Catholics. Catholics need to know the truth, and you need to engage them about what they believe and why they believe it so that you can understand that, that there's really a lot of difference between what churches. Now, what about Protestant churches? Well, I like to say it this way. Protestants walked out the door of the Catholic church, but they stayed on the front porch. Many of the things that the Protestants do and believe are really hold over Catholic doctrine. Do you realize that all of the reformers were never scripturally baptized? 
they held on to their Catholic sprinkling as babies. And so uh, many of the Protestants, while, uh, while uh, believing that they're much different, they are in essence of the same DNA. What about charismatics? Well, they believe in, in special revelation. Uh, now, you know, they believe that maybe uh, somebody has a vision uh, and uh, at the foot of their bed, Jesus is going to show up and say, build a college uh, here. Huh? Oral Roberts did that, built uh, Oral Roberts University down there. Now, when I've ever had a vision like that, it's because I ate pizza too late at night. And I took a little Tums or something and got over it. Now, if I'm making light of that, charismatics make much too much of their own revelation and not enough of God's revelation. It is God's sole and final authority. Of so much confusion coming out of the charismatic movements. Number two, New Testament churches have a single simple message of salvation. If you walk up to anybody this week outside this church, out there on the job, in the street, out there at uh, wherever you go to shop, uh, in my town it would be Walmart, uh, and just engage them and say, uh, I, I'm concerned to know the way of salvation. I promise you, you would get a list longer than uh, your receipt at Walmart about how to, how to get to heaven. There's actually only one simple way of salvation. And it's this. The saving gospel of Jesus Christ offered by grace alone, received by faith alone to whosoever will is the exclusive means of a knowable eternal salvation. Now my English teacher would give me an F for using too many commas in that sentence, but I wanted to put every one of those definers because it's very important to know that salvation is only in Jesus Christ. There is no salvation outside of Jesus Christ. No salvation. So any church that has, or any kind of religious group that doesn't have Jesus Christ as the securer and the offerer of salvation is not a true group. Also, it is by grace alone. That is, no one who is saved deserves to be saved. No one. That's the most shocking statement by most Americans, that they believe somehow people become good enough to go to heaven. It's by grace alone. You don't deserve to be saved. And then it's received by faith alone. You don't have to work for it. Boy, you can eliminate a lot of churches that way, couldn't you? And it's to whosoever will. And it's the exclusive way of a knowable, eternal salvation. Now, that doesn't fit Catholics' way of salvation. They have seven sacraments that you have to go through in order to be assured of heaven. And then even the Pope himself doesn't know for sure he's going to heaven. The highest ranking cardinals. I'm not talking about St. Louis now. I'm not talking about the St. Louis Cardinals. The highest ranking cardinal in the Catholic Church doesn't know for sure that they're going to heaven. Do you know the, the youngest believer, one of these boys or girls who's just trusted Christ, knows more than the average Catholic. They know they're going to heaven based on what Christ has done for them. 
Their, uh, Catholicism offers no hope of salvation and they begin it in the wrong way by saying it begins by sprinkling water on a baby. You've all talked to them in that manner as well. Now Protestants aren't a lot better. I love the Protestants who say it was Protestantism that recovered the doctrine of justification by faith. Ladies and gentlemen, it was never lost. If it was lost, then there was 12 centuries or so where there was no salvation for anybody. Protestantism did not restore justification by faith. That had been the message of God's churches for centuries. And then your charismatic, my charismatic friends, I don't know how many I have, I I, I, we might could meet in a phone booth, I'm not sure, uh, believe that they can lose their salvation. And uh, they, they say, they, they mock, they think it's a matter of pride for us to say, well, I know I'm not ever going to be lost. You see, it wasn't your salvation, it was God's salvation was offered to you. It's God that keeps you saved. And so... Uh, we, uh, New Testament churches have a very, we, we, can, we can tell that to one of the youngest uh, people in our church about how they can be saved. And we understand that there's the, the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the drawing of God to bring that person to an understanding of that. And not only do I not have a problem with that, I have a problem with it not being there. That we can somehow just talk somebody into some kind of profession of faith but uh, New Testament churches believe in that kind of salvation. I just spoke about this. The New Testament churches believe Christ founded the church during his personal earthly ministry. B.H. Carroll, the man I was, uh, had a moment with about uh, Brother McDaniel, uh, he housed with B.H. Uh, Carroll when he was the president at Waco and then finally became the president. Uh, president at Southwestern said this, Christ alone founded his church. I mean that the church was established in the days of his sojourn in the flesh and that the work of its construction commenced with the reception of the material prepared by John the Baptist. That organization commenced with the appointment of the 12 apostles and by, that by the close of his earthly ministry there existed at least one church as a model, the church at Jerusalem. Now just Gave about 45 minutes on that, so you don't need me to do any more than that. I'm going to mention this briefly. Number four, New Testament churches are local autonomous assemblies of baptized believers under the headship of Jesus Christ. Now, there are a lot of churches under man's organizations and not under divine organizations. And so you can always eliminate some churches from being a scriptural church based on their understanding of who's in charge of their church. Now, I'm glad you've got a great pastor and he's been here so long. I, I just admire that so much. I feel like a quitter. Uh, you know, I only stayed 33 years where I was at. I feel like I quit uh, well, way into that. But I started uh, a little bit uh, earlier than he did. Maybe it will, will be what I will say. But I'm so glad about that. But every pastor, and this pastor knows this, is an interim pastor. He's not permanent. He'll be replaced someday. And uh, there needs to be uh, that understanding because this church does not rise or fall based upon your competent pastor. 
we have a head over the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, we are accountable to Him as congregations. And we need to realize that He's the one that's in charge. Every church is autonomous. That means self-governing. Now, here's what the first president of the Southern Baptist Convention, William Johnson, said. The term church indicates one church, one body of the Lord's people meeting together in one place, not several congregations forming one church. He's talking about the church is not a denomination. Now, they've, they've gone away from that now. Most Southern Baptists think that they are a denomination, and that's how they're portrayed in modern media today. But their original president understood what church truth was. There's no such thing as the Baptist church. There are Baptist churches. Each church is autonomous. I, these, these things seem so simple, I'm sure you're saying. You, we brought this guy in to do this, really? Yeah, you did. I'll be available next year to do it again. Number five, New Testament churches practice two ordinances instituted by Christ, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. The gentleman that preached the charge at my dad's ordination, A.A. Davis, uh, became well-known and well-circulated as a man who taught Brother Carroll's brother, uh, the Trail of Blood chart. And A.A. A. Davis taught the Trail of Blood chart. I was there as a boy remembering that. Now, I didn't pay a lot of attention to it, but I wished I had, had understood it better then. But look what, look what uh, Dr. Davis says. A.A. A. Davis, actually not a doctor by, by certificate. but He said, Baptism has been the battleground of many hurtful religious heresies in the world today. That is where the religious world had its first argument, the waters of baptism, and significantly, the man who is wrong on the baptism question will invariably be wrong on the Lord's Supper question without a single exception. Brother Davis uh, was the pastor of First Baptist Church in Nowata, uh, Oklahoma, until his death. So let me say this about baptism. Number one, baptism is not optional. Believers are not free to either be baptized or not to be baptized. We are commanded to be baptized. Some people have the idea, well, one of these days I may get around to that. Really? It's the first commandment of a believer. It's the answer of a good conscience toward God. We need to, every believer needs to be baptized. It's not optional. If you're a believer and have not been baptized, you need to immediately submit yourself to this church for baptism. Part of the commands of a believer. Secondly, it's for believers only. We do not practice infant baptisms. The old Baptists call those water ceremonies. They would not even call them baptism because they did not replicate the baptisms of the New Testament, which were not only of believers only, but also by immersion only. Now, anyone who is honest with the Bible knows that in the Bible, people went down into the water and they came up out of the water. John the Baptist looked for a place that had a lot of water because 
Baptism in the Bible is immersion. Can you think about how many churches you can immediately check off as being not New Testament? I mean, there, 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 there are just so many that we know about that are not practicing immersion only of believers. It is also symbolic and not saving. Now, I want to say that, and then I want to make, make a statement behind that. There are some churches that believe that if you're not baptized, then you're not saved. But the Bible does not say that you're saved by baptism. It is a burial. It's a burial. Now, we are raised to walk in newness of life, but we don't receive that life in the baptistry. The same people believe you can lose your salvation, but I've never heard of them getting rebaptized over and over again. They're not really consistent with believing that about, well, if you can lose your salvation, if you got it being baptized, you need to keep being baptized. One guy suggested the best thing to do is to be drowned in the baptistry. That would, that would make sure that you, you, you made your way to heaven. Here's something that is very important as well, and that is true baptism has to be church authorized. Uh, no preacher, no person has the authority to baptize someone. Only the church has that authority. Jesus gave that authority in the Great Commission in Matthew 28 and all the other uh, commissions that, that record baptism as part of the commission. It's always the church's responsibility to do that. Churches should not, they may, but they should not just hand out generic baptisms, even to believers. I received a phone call one day from a man, and he was crying on the other end. He said, Jerry, this is Dusty. This is Dusty Butler, one of my high school buddies. He was four years younger than me, but he and I played basketball out in the backyard. I was the only one that had a goal, so all the kids came and shot baskets at my house, and And uh, Dusty said, I've just been led to Christ by my neighbor. He had a great testimony. He said, Jerry, the first person I thought about was you. I wanted to tell you, I want you to baptize me. I said, Dusty, where are you living? He said, "I, I live in Mansfield. That's like 25 miles from where we are. And you don't know how what 25 miles is in the Metroplex. That's like five, a five day wagon trip. I'm talking about that's long. So I said, Dusty, I said, boy, I'm so glad you're saved, but I'm not going to baptize you because I, I, I feel an obligation to you to, to disciple you and teach you. And I said, I, I, I don't think you could make it uh, you know, across town every Sunday and every Wednesday night and be a part of our church. He said, really? I said, yeah. Now, Dusty didn't get offended like some people do. Dusty sold his house and moved to our neighborhood. And he's, within a year of him being saved, took my first, with me to my first trip to Ghana, West Africa. Still a member of our church and still faithfully serving the Lord in our church. Baptism has to be a church thing. It's not something that somebody does for you. It's an act of the church. And this brings me to this one. And that is, by the act of baptism, we are added to the church's membership. I know there may be discussion, well, are we received? 
when the church decides to vote on us or is it the act of baptism? I'll let you worry about that. I know what the Bible says. It says, They that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day they were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And so nobody is added to the church apart from the act of baptism. So if you want to be a member of a church, and you ought to be, then you need to be baptized either by that church or by another scriptural church. Now when I was writing in this in my book and thinking about uh, this matter of immersion and believers being baptized, I came up with a question about what makes Baptist immersion different from other immersions. You know, there are other church groups that immerse, and there are also other church groups that immerse believers. And uh, if you look at some of them, you realize that they have a very recent history. They're not but about 100 years old. These are the Bible church people. And I came up to this answer. I don't know if it'll be good enough for you, but it, it was something that I think the Lord pointed me to, and that is that the blood of mortars is in our baptismal waters. That's what makes a difference. We have a heritage of people who died to be baptized the way we baptize. We have an historical connection to the original Christians and all of those between them and us. Many of them died as heretics because they baptized the way we baptize. We should not sell our baptism short nor equal other people's baptism with ours simply because they're believers and they get fully immersed. Now, if that's not good enough for you, if you'll tell me after church something better than that, I sure want to hear it, and I mean that seriously. The, the second ordinance of the church is the Lord's Supper. Let me just put up the three positions that most people are aware of. Uh, there are people and churches that have an open position believing that the ordinance is a Christian ordinance, that any Christian can go anywhere in any church and observe the Lord's Supper with that church without any kind of hesitation. Another position is what's called a close position where they believe it's somewhat of a organizational or a church ordinance in the sense that if you're a Baptist, then you can take the Lord's Supper with other Baptist churches wherever you are. And then there's a third position that believes that the, that the Lord's Supper is closed to be observed only to those who are members of that local congregation. And the only reasonable position is that if Jesus gave the ordinances to the church, the local church, the individual church, then only the individual church has a right to observe that with its members. Okay. Now, I, I knew that's what you'd believe, but I just want to say this, that, that we are in a minority. There are people that come into our churches that believe that they're offended by the fact that if you're going to take the Lord's Supper, that they couldn't do it with, with the uh, same kind of equal uh, sincerity and genuineness as which you do. But let me, uh, let me use a quote here. You might not know of this man, but if you lived a um, hundred years ago, uh, maybe a little bit less than that, but a hundred years ago, you would, you would identify the name of George W. Truitt. Dr. Truitt was the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Dallas 
from 1897 to 1944. He was followed by W.A. Criswell. These are names you may recognize or not. And uh, uh, Dr. Truett was also the president of the Southern Baptist Convention as well. Now here's what he said. Now this is his position uh, that would go back uh, to the 40s, to the 30s, to the 20s. And here's what he said. Since the supper is an ordinance of the church, it must invariably follow that whatever would disbar a man from church membership, that's what he's talking about, must also debar him from the Lord's table in that church. If there's something about membership, then each congregation is free to decide who are members in their church. You can't have a group of 20 people walk in tonight and say, we're members of your church unless they're received by this church. That's what George W. Truett is saying here. He goes on to say, It is logically inconceivable that one should be deprived of membership in the church and yet not also be deprived of coming to the Lord's table in that church since the first privilege is the source and foundation for the second. Takes a little thinking now, but let's do some thinking. He goes on. That the local church is the custodian of this ordinance and must judge the qualifications of those desiring to participate of it is shown by the fact that the command to observe it was given not to individuals but to a company. Manifestly, this table is inside and not outside the church. One final paragraph. The church alone can therefore be charged with the responsibility of its government. The local church is the only body known to the scriptures which has any competency or jurisdiction in the government of her two ordinances. Well, amen to that. And uh, churches need to practice what 1 Corinthians 11 primarily teaches us about the responsibility of its membership with regard to observing the Lord's Supper. Number six, New Testament churches believe in soul competency and the priesthood of the believers. I want to just say a word or two about this. This is not a highly discussed issue among many modern Baptists, but among those who had to literally survived in the face of Catholic persecution, they stood against the fact that they needed a Catholic priest to hear their prayers. And they believed that they were priests before God, just like the Bible said they were. And they believed that in their own lives, they had competency in their own soul before God, who knew them and did not need someone else to either hear their confession, or to offer their prayers in their behalf. Can I get a witness tonight to say amen? So New Testament churches believe that down through the centuries. Number seven, New Testament churches are led by a pastor, served by deacons, and governed by the congregation. Let's talk just a minute about this. I, I really like to 
settle in on this since I'm not a pastor anymore. And uh, I like to talk to you about how this church is put together. In the Bible, you find this singular position that churches were led by a pastor. Even in, when there is a multiplicity of pastors or elders mentioned, it is always assumed that there will be one senior elder. Never a doubt about that. If you have a doubt about it, go to Revelation chapter 2, and all the seven letters are addressed to their angel. You might want to refer to your pastor now as Angel Smith an angel who was the messenger of the church that was their pastor. So let's talk about the pastor for a moment. This is the same word that's used for elder and bishop. Elder simply means someone who is not a novice, someone who is uh, gaining experience. Uh, doesn't necessarily mean age, but, but uh, there may be a connection to some degree to that. A bishop is an overseer. Uh, the pastor is not, in, not to uh, be involved in every ministry, but he is over every ministry in the church. There's nothing about which the pastor is not ultimately accountable to God. He's accountable to every music ministry in the church. He's accountable to every nursery, child care ministry in the church. He's responsible for every outreach ministry in the church. The pastor is the overseer. And he's also a pastor. He's a shepherd. He cares for those in the church. So let's see who qualifies. Number one, pastors in the Bible are gender specific. They are males. They are men. Think about how many churches are off the list now being New Testament churches who have women pastors. Hey, I love women. I love my mama when she was alive. I love my wife. I love my daughter. I love my granddaughter. Did I mention her to you? I'm taking some resumes, uh, resumes from some guys that are about 21, 22. She's got a boyfriend, but he's not the deal yet. So anybody that's interested may turn their names in. I've already talked to some guys over here, but they're a little bit too young, 17 and 18. I'm checking this out. Hey, I'm traveling the world. Folks, what I'm telling you is no woman can be the pastor of a scriptural church. So you can just write that off. And, and I feel sorry for churches like the Methodist Church who have so many women preachers of, of men who've defaulted even among Methodist organizations to take responsibility. They shouldn't have ever been put in that place. It was unknown. Wesley's never conceived that, I'm quite sure. Gender specific. Now I could talk to you a little bit about Beth Moore, but I don't need to. She got all in a got her all her makeup all messed up sometime recently because they began to press this issue in Southern Baptist churches about male leadership. And she got all upset about the fact that she believed that on Sunday morning she could stand behind this desk right here and be a preacher in any Baptist church. I'm telling you, she's wrong. And churches need to understand that the role of a pastor is to be served by men only. 
Do you know that the patriarchal model of families and church are becoming a dinosaur? Black Lives Matters is about tearing down the patriarchal home and the, the uh, nuclear home. And yet that's the very reason why there's so much trouble in so many homes is that there's not a male leader. Don't be egging me on, okay? Quit that. You're, you're shaking your head. You're saying amen. I just want you to know that only a pastor, only a, a man can be a pastor. And also he has to be biblically qualified. We have more unqualified preachers who are stayed in ministry after they've even either fallen into sexual uh, impropriety or financial indiscretion. Hey, I believe all of them can be forgiven by Christ. Amen? But hey, if a, if a bank president has embezzled some money, you don't give him the key to the vault. A man who is a pastor needs to be a man of integrity. And, uh, and one of the things that has to be said is that one of the, one of the qualifications so outstanding is he has to be the, the husband of one wife. And uh, the husband of one wife means not one at a time. It means one wife. Now, isn't that interesting that out of all of the... Uh, out of all of the qualifications, this is the only qualification that is post-salvation. Now, you could have been a, a drinker before God called you to be a pastor and still be a pastor. You could have been an angry person, a striker, and still be a pastor later on. Isn't it interesting, though, that God says, I will even providentially protect someone who needs to be a pastor. I believe that, too. I believe God can do that. Biblically qualified. Holy Spirit appointed. Acts 20, 28 says it's the Holy Ghost who uh, appoints the pastor to lead the church. Now, I know we go through the process. I'll talk maybe just a minute about that a little bit later on. We go through the process of a church voting on a preacher, but you don't hire a preacher. You decide what God's will is in His life and in your life, and you agree on what the Holy Spirit's decided for your church. If you hire a preacher, you have a hireling. You pay a preacher to be free to be your pastor. And you ought to do that well, too. I should maybe clear off a spot here and talk about a raise or something. I don't know. Divinely accountable. Divinely accountable. Acts 13, verses 7, 17, and 21 talk about the fact that uh, the pastor is to rule the church recognizing that there will be an accounting. Now, I believe that there will be a special accounting. Uh, James 3, 1 says that every teacher is held to a higher standard. You say, well, that's not fair. I don't care. Every pastor needs to live a higher standard than even those of the church. But listen... The accountability also of the pastor is not only for himself, but for you. And the Bible says in Hebrews 13 verse 7 that he could do something joyfully 
about giving account for you. When, you, when, you, when he, he stands before the Lord at the judgment seat and the Lord says to Brother Smith, Brother Smith, what about this family? Were they faithful? Well, not, not as much as they could. That's not good for him or for you. Although he's not to be accountable for a bunch of uh, unfaithful people. Do you understand that? God's going to use him as a sounding board for your involvement in the church. Just read Hebrews 13, 7. You remember that, 13, 7. Hebrews 13, 7. Hebrews 13, 7. You'll remember that. The responsibility of your pastor is to feed and to lead the church. And those are great responsibilities. I wish to add time to talk about the government of the church. Sometimes there is a real tension between those in some churches that I've gone to. There's the overbearingness of a pastor sometimes when the pastor thinks that his word is the final word. And then there's sometimes the overbearing nature of a congregation that believes that the pastor is not free to do anything to lead the church, that there has to be consensus among the whole congregation before you can uh, really lead a church. Well, I don't believe in either one of those. I believe that there's a natural tension that goes between serving God with with fallen people who are saved, just like the preacher's fallen, and we're trying to do God's will, but uh, we're doing it as a congregation. Baptist churches today are turning, unscripturally, to elder-led churches. They're going back to a Presbyterian model. I'm not telling Baptists to leave their Baptist church and join a Presbyterian church, but if you want an elder-led church, Go to a Bible church or go to a Presbyterian church. That's how they lead it. They don't ask the congregation about anything other than finance and everything. Other than that, they're going to make the decision. I believe that there is a, the greatest model for the, the endurance and the perpetuity of a church is congregational government. I believe God put it together that way so that uh, when there is a failing by a pastor, God will cover that. When there's a failing by our congregation, God will cover that. He doesn't put us in this huge organization and says, well, you're going to have to organizationally figure it out. I'm going to say this later on, but I'm, I'm going to say it now because I think of a lot of good stuff and I forget it. I'm going to say this, though. You can't be fully sanctified in this life apart from church life. You've got the Holy Spirit inside of you. And you've got the Bible to guide you. But the third element that's often missing in churches is that people don't understand. This is where God sanctifies you. This is God's sanctifying element. So I'm really, I'm really, I really believe in churches. I believe you know God's will for this church as your pastor leads it. Amen. Amen. Go on to the next point. Amen. All right, here we go. We're doing, we're doing well. We're, we're, we're coming to the conclusion. Remember, we're, we're looking at 10. Now, you may need to buckle up on this one. Number eight, New Testament churches respect the privilege of church membership and dismiss from their fellowship ungodly members who refuse to repent. 
Now we, we hold to a lot of doctrines in Baptist churches. That one right there has been lost in the last 50 or 60 years. Vance Havner said that the Baptist church was the easiest thing to get into and the hardest thing to get out of he had ever seen. Walk down an aisle and give your hand to the preacher sometimes and become a member of a church and then live an ungodly life and the church won't do anything about it. Well, in the Bible, the church as a whole, not you don't have some kind of pastoral police force here that goes out quietly and, and knocks off unrepentant people or arrests them. This is the work of the congregation. In 1 Corinthians 5, there was a man who was living in sin openly in the church and no one was doing anything about it. And Paul was led by the Holy Spirit to say, you need to remove that man, turn him over to Satan. And uh, thankfully, by 2 Corinthians, that man had repented and Paul was encouraging him to be brought back into the fellowship. Oh, I, I could take up the next 10 minutes telling you the story about a lady who we, were, we discipled before we re, bring them into our membership. And one of the, there's a little bitty paragraph in our discipleship manual that if under certain conditions there is immorality and that's not confessed that we will remove people from our church membership. She read that and, and just, man, just she was nearly out of control. And I said, well, meet with my wife and myself uh, next week. Let's talk about it. And so she, her, her blood pressure was still up and when she came in and she said, my brother told me to not get in this church, to leave it as fast as you can, don't join it. I said, well, what's the, what's the understanding? Well, uh, you don't have the right to do that. I said, no, I don't have the right, but the Bible teaches this. And let me, I said, let me give you some scriptures to look over. I said, just suppose, and I gave her this example, I said, just suppose the man who was leading the music was having a sexual relationship with a lady that's playing the piano. And everybody in the church knew about it, but the church wouldn't do anything about it. She went from being absolutely mad to being uncontrollably broken and began to cry. She was just broken. And I think, man, I have messed up today. I mean... What have I done to this woman? She gathered herself after a few minutes and she said, That happened in my family's life. She said, uh, The pastor had a relationship with my mother and everybody in the church knew about it. We wouldn't do anything about it. I said, They would have in our church if we knew about it and they wouldn't repent of it. And she ended up joining the church. A lot of people misunderstand what discipline's all about. I'm a uh, 22 year old survivor of, of cancer. I had prostate cancer when I was 53, and uh, the doctor gave me some options, and and we opted for a, a full surgery. And you know that guy. He did, he, did, he did some stuff. He cut me, and I'm telling you, my recovery was awesome. It was just unbelievably difficult. You know, I didn't ever go around and say, you know, that doctor didn't like me at all. That doctor, 
sure did mistreat me. I praise that doctor to everybody who uh, gave me a little bit of an ear. Because although he hurt me, he helped me. And that's what churches are doing when they do discipline. They, they help somebody. And here's what a, an old Baptist theologian, John Dagg, said, when discipline leaves a church, Christ goes with it. I think you'll, you'll realize that when churches do not discipline, God is so grieved by that, the manifestation of His presence is withdrawn from a lot of churches. And now we become fleshly driven. And, uh, and I think it's, in my case as a minister, it's been the most difficult thing because I knew what would be the reaction to it and how hard it would be. But it was right. It was right. Number nine. We're almost to number ten, aren't we? Number nine, New Testament churches are great commission focused, so winning the loss, sending missionaries, and planting churches. That's why you're here. God put you here as a lighthouse to your neighborhood, to your community, to the people you work with, so that you can share the gospel with them. And then after sharing the gospel with them, encourage them to become a part of your church family. And then by God calling missionaries out of your church, you can send them out as you do. And then when you plant churches out there, you're doing God's work. That's what we need to keep the need doing is churches. That's what we're here for. Thank God you're involved in that. Here's number 10. You're going to really get happy about number 10 because I think that we're closer than we've ever been to this. New Testament churches look for the imminent return of Christ and His ultimate reign on the earth as King of kings and Lord of lords. I'm not predicting anything. Things can get worse. But the worser they get, the better I feel because I know that the clock is ticking. Jesus is coming. And even if it's not this year, it may be next year. And every day we're closer, closer, closer to his return and you know what I figured out at my age and it's really true about you as well there's nothing going on in your life that the rapture wouldn't fix any problem I've got the rapture is going to take over well I'm, I'm excited about that I'm writing that new book on heaven it's entitled uh, getting ready to leave come go with me to heaven is the title of that book and I've been so excited when I've refreshed my mind again about what's going to happen one of these days. I don't care whether I'm alive or dead. I'm going out of here when Jesus comes back. And uh, I don't know how many more years I've got. The Lord's got that in hand. I'm not worried about that at all. I think I've got enough money to live the rest of my life as long as I die by Friday. Uh, but seriously, I'm a lot better off than that. But boy, I'm telling you, one of these days, there's going to be a, a cry that goes out from heaven. And uh, God's people are going to be taken out of here. Dead in Christ are going to rise first. I was reading one guy said the reason that's, the reason that's so is because they got a little further to go. The dead in Christ are going to rise first. And we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord.
I don't believe that uh, things are out of hand. I don't. They've never been out of hand in any time of history. My last chapter of my newest book, Who Didn't See This Coming? The last chapter is entitled, Things Aren't Coming Apart, They're Coming Together. No matter how bad things look on, in this world, they look really great on the other side. And we're all so close to that. I hope that you're ready for that. I hope that there's been preparation in your life. I'm so excited about the fact that somebody's threatening me because of my age. They said, Brother Jerry, you're so old. I'm just so glad you're upright and you're still preaching. Well, I am too, but man, threaten me with heaven. Come on, let's talk it up. Going to heaven. Come on, going to heaven. My, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. Those are things that make a Baptist church a Baptist church. Now, there may be another 10. I'm not sure, but time has only allowed us to do this tonight for this time together. May God bless you as we have just a moment of reflection upon what God might speak to our heart, speak into our heart. And then uh, following just a moment of that of happening and us having a prayer, I want to just advertise what we're going to do the rest of the week together, if I might. Bow your heads with me, please. Father, we we're mindful that we've uh, taken up a couple of hours of a very precious possession that each of these people have uh, devoted to you and have given me the privilege to be a steward of tonight. And I thank you for that. I appreciate the, the good attention that's been shown to your word tonight and to the truths that we treasure as your people. And God, tonight it's my prayer that every individual, every couple, every mom and dad, every boy and girl tonight would uh, stand up a little bit straighter and uh, put a little bit of a smile on their face now that they know a little bit more about what you've taught us in your word about who your people are. And God, uh, we're humbled by that. We, we just are amazed that among all the people of the world, you've given us this great treasure of truth. And uh, we, we, re we receive that from you. We have been thankful for that, for the years of our life that we've served you. Just uh, bless tonight as we have this moment together. In Jesus' name.